Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm very grateful for this momentary opportunity to open my personal thoughts to you here at Emmanuel Church. More specifically to, I hope in a very real way, open my life and my heart to Chuck on this day. The day that will perhaps forever bear a unique mark upon his life as he becomes a pastor of a Christian church. I think you all know the earmarks of the age of anxiety in which we happen to now be living. We are rootless people. We are in an age of devastatingly rapid change. We are in the midst of a world that is facing us with an unrelenting and grinding international tension. We are faced also with a situation, if we look at it clearly, of burning racial bitterness. An age today in which we live right now in while we are worshiping at this moment where the have-nots will risk throughout the entire world will risk anything maybe even communism, maybe even fascism or whatever else may come down the pike may risk anything to become people free and have a place in the sun this is an age of religious boom as you can see here in this place and in many other places and yet an age of decaying morality. An age when the churches are becoming increasingly captive to the suburbs, leaving the cities and moving out into the far reaches of space. Where a recent author, Gibson Winter, has suggested an age where a man's church and family life are presumably safely insulated against the noise, the dirt, and the slums, and the politics of big business, of labor, of race relations, of world politics and peace, and where the suburban bedroom has indeed become a refuge for the weary, a welcome haven from all the ugly tensions of the world in which we involve ourselves and which we find pressing upon our lives. Or so it would seem, unless someone else comes along to tear the mask off the faces that we wear when we leave this place, the face that we have created and revealed it as a trap, full of its own insecurities, full of its own tensions, full of its own anxieties. And it's surely not surprising that so many of us in our day, including a lot of us inside of the church and out, both clergy and lay people, try to, in some very real way, preserve a bit of sanity by attempting to live on the surface of life, dreadfully afraid to look below the surface with a downright fear of what we might really find there in the inmost depths of our hearts. Another modern realist has summed up the whole business tersely in this way. The fact is that Christianity today is limited to a thin layer of human beings underneath which goes on the ferment of a new world that is now in the process of becoming, of being made. And in the face of this kind of thing, I don't know about you, but I know about me, I'm running scared. And our common problem is how in the world are we in the church going to manage a secure ministry of word and sacrament 
without being caught up ourselves in this kind of tension, in this kind of insecurity, in such a way that our ministry, your ministry, my ministry, Chuck's ministry, Rudy's ministry, and Martin's ministry may turn out to be a blessing to people and not a blight. How, for example, are we going to let this young man to be ordained today? No. A man who has accepted a call from God. A man who is willing to set apart his life for a specific task. How are we going to let him know that being a busy, busy pastor, which, by the way, is the image of most laymen in terms of their pastors, is really an escape from the sensitivity of the world around us. How are we going to let him know that most of us pastors are so seemingly busy that we are not able to listen, that we are not able to take time to hear, that we are not willing to be what we ought to be and what we know we ought to be, that we are not willing to be real people, not willing to show our real feelings for fear of what people might say or do or what they might think about us? How are we going to convey that message to Chuck? In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, there is a suggestive, candid verse which may be of real help to us this morning. It goes something like this. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, unto Christ. In the context of this passage, Paul is indicating the need for a church that will grow up, and that includes all of us even the one that's going to be ordained here this morning. A church that will be mature. A church that will reflect the oneness of Christ in the face of a world which Paul pictures as a stormy sea. Currents moving here and there. Tides pulling to and fro. A world in which a church must become mature as Christ was mature. And I don't think that we do any damage to the text at all if we apply it not only to the church but also to its ministry of which I happen to be a part. To you and to me. And to this young man who will somehow use his life. He doesn't know how and I don't know how. Somehow use his life to help that maturity come about. And the first mark of a man who is mature in Christ in an insecure world is this sensitivity. Sensitivity to the human sounds and voices and mutterings that are going on all around us. The willingness on our part to sit down and sit back and listen. You know, I think we sometimes become so preoccupied with what our Lord did and said that we pay too little attention to the silences in his life. I suppose if we did pay attention to the silences, we would think immediately of the quiet moments when he went off by himself to commune with God. Now let's face it. You and I are not strangers to the sensitivity of Christ to people. His readiness to listen to the voice of God. But have you ever thought that perhaps much of the time that Jesus took away from his disciples, off by himself listening, was spent not only listening to God, but also to human sounds and voices, in the world around him? Indeed, is it possible at all to hear the voice of God without hearing the voices of the world? For you see, it's the very nature of love to be sensitive to human sounds. 
to be sensitive to human voices, to be willing to listen, to cultivate an artist's eye and a novelist's ear, so that we may understand, if possible, what the world is actually saying to us in the first place, and even what it is thinking down in its heart. I wonder, does the Church of Jesus Christ really listen to people? Do you and I really take time to listen to one another? Do we know what the world is saying about those of us who are ministers or what people really feel down inside but don't tell you to your face ever when they find out you happen to be a layman who belongs to a manual Lutheran church or Ascension parish? I wonder if we really listen enough to be sensitive to the barriers that people have erected within themselves against the church and against its pastors. For I have an uncomfortable suspicion lurking down here that it's not Christ or the gospel to which people today are indifferent, but to us, the church and its clergy, the church and its people. And I suspect we'd better learn to listen, to grow up in every way unto Christ through an increasing sensitivity to the people who are around us and the people to whom we are called to minister. For how can we possibly speak the word that they need so desperately to hear if we are not willing to listen, if we don't know what they're saying, much less what they're thinking? Samuel Miller, a dean of Harvard Divinity School, lays it right on the block when he uses these words. If there is one basic professional hazard to the ministry today, if it betrays itself often unknowingly, it is in the fact that being in the 20th century, it does not see the 20th century. God pity us. But too often the ministry is a mask, whitewashed, perfumed, holy but hollow, with just the proper tones to cover its impotence and its vacuum. All doubts glossed over, all stains removed, all the questions answered to pass on to people, all human embarrassment wiped out, a nasty ecclesiastical arrogance in the presence of a dynamic living God that we worship this morning. And to escape that indictment, we need to cultivate at least the grace of being able and willing to listen. Now I know Chuck and myself and the rest of us who are pastors have been exposed to the books that can help us to become sensitive to the sights and the sounds around us sociological diagnoses of our age. And there is no question that these things are tremendously helpful in terms of suggestion and carrying out ministry. But I want Chuck to remember this day that we are not ministering to disembodied problems outlined or suggested by textbooks. We are called to minister to people, not to problems not the problems that are outlined for us in some dusty book found in the corner. And perhaps because we are willing to listen, to hear, to understand, perhaps then we can recognize that we are concerned about them, that we love them, and that we are not moralizers or do-gooders for the sake of doing good. Think of the magnificent barrier, Chuck, that has been erected against us by almost everybody. The universal assumption that whenever a minister steps into a home or among a group of people or joins in a conversation, his function, just because he's a preacher, is to stand in judgment upon other people.
there in that particular situation and how this kind of thing really sends people flying from the church rather than confronting them with Jesus Christ. There's also the strong notion abroad that the function of the church and its people is to stand in judgment upon the world and upon non-church people. All those who happen to be lazying around now on this Sunday morning while you're sitting here listening to me, that we are to stand in judgment upon them. But even that barrier can be broken down if we sincerely desire to grow up into the maturity of Christ. For sensitivity to the needs, the problems, the perplexities, the hidden rebellions that I know you all have, whether you tell me or not, that thing which is indispensable to the word of forgiveness, which is really at the heart of the gospel, reconciliation to which we today and him are now being called. But sensitivity to people is only the first step to a far deeper involvement in the lives around us. For to grow up in the fullness of Christ into mature manhood as Christians means that we are willing to identify ourselves with the people we serve. To know, not in them but in ourselves, to know surely all the terrifying pressures and tensions and anxieties of the world in which we happen to be living. For how else can you speak love in truth? And this phrase, truth and love, means more than just speaking the truth to people. It involves every aspect of a man's life and of his ministry. It means a willingness to be crucified with Christ. Christ who was crucified precisely because he was willing to identify himself with us. To be tempted like you are tempted and I am tempted. To die like you're going to die and I'm going to die. And to face despair and joy in the midst of our living. You know, we golden-lipped and silver-tongued preachers preach too glibly about despair. And we must actually know the despair for ourselves, even as our Lord knew it. And Chuck, you will know it from the moment that you set foot outside of this church to the last day and breath in the ministry that you have now undertaken. No wonder our Lord recoiled from despair and horror the night before he died. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And it is not strange that we too should recoil from this kind of identification, from this kind of involvement in the hollow emptiness of the days that we face. And the only difference, I think, is that our recoil is not customarily marked by sweat. It's more apt to take the form of that familiar incident in C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters when a junior devil from hell is sent on a mission to earth and the junior devil successfully saves a man from deep involvement and commitment to the living God. And he does it by suggesting to the man that it's just about now time in his life that he take a lunch break. In other words, give up, forget it, don't become involved with anybody. Don't worry about a living God. And ministers and laymen today know that same kind of wonderful relief when they are called away from the struggles with the principalities and the powers of our world to the more practical matters, to a kind of coffee break in the middle of our actual mission as a people of God. 
as a church to the introduction of vestments or the decision as to a building site or perhaps firing an incompetent organist, rounding up prospects for a pastor's class, launching a building fund drive, writing meaningless letters which people perhaps don't even read, becoming involved in theological debate which most of the time leads nowhere as to the distinction between the LCA and the ALC and these two over against the Missouri Synod. Now I'm not sneering at these very practical and necessary concerns in the life of the church. I'm not sneering at all. But I only know from my own experience what a relief it can be to turn from deep involvement and meaning with people application of the gospel to our day and to lives that face us to promote a building program to get involved in theological debate and just sit back and talk sometimes we go on a perpetual coffee break from involvement and the terrifying necessity of wrestling with the truth with life as it is and not the way we would like to have it I believe that wrestling has to take place in the dark. It's got to go on constantly at the level of communication, at least at that level, in preaching and reaching and teaching and counseling. And yet so few of us are really willing to risk that, even at the level of talking to one another. I'm going further, Chuck. This kind of wrestling, this kind of wrestling at the level of communication, presupposes a far deeper involvement a willingness to live on the far edge of what you call your theology, constantly exposing the formulations of the faith that you hold to the sounds and the voices that you hear in the world around you. So that in some way, you can interpret the truth in love for the people that you have been called to serve at Ascension Church. Without that kind of truth in love maturity, this willingness to die to every theological formula we may hold dear as tradition, without that kind of willingness, we will become little more than empty preachers manning a fortress of an arid and doctrinaire theology, firing buckshot at imaginary targets and issues that do not really exist. But as Paul points out, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and chief among the rulers of the darkness of this kind of world in which we live is fear. And the same fear which holds men back from deep involvement in the church and with the living God and the church's mission may also hold us as pastors back from identification with real people facing real pressures undergoing real anxiety and living in a world like this one we might draw back even though we have the truth in our hands but if we are willing to be crucified with Christ the promise of the gospel says that we shall also rise with him to newness of life and so now third a man mature in Christ needs not only to be sensitive to the voices and sounds of people around him not only become involved in their lives and insecurities and joy, but he will also exhibit the same amazing patience that our Lord Jesus Christ showed in his life 
to his followers and his disciples. I don't know if any of you have ever taken time to read through the Gospels of the New Testament and think about the 12 men who followed Christ. What dull and unimaginative men they were. Leaf through the Gospels sometimes and note how frequently they came out with the most incredibly dull-witted questions and answers. And in the view of the crucial urgency of the mission of Jesus at that time, the short time that he had to prepare these men for ministry, the patience that he showed with them was almost unbelievable. But that's the mark of mature faith. He did what he was sent to do. He went to them and he listened to them and he identified himself with them. And as for the rest, he trusted God to do with these 12 men what he would want to do. And in contrast to that, how impatient we ministers are sometimes. And perhaps, of course, it's understandable in the light of the urgencies and the times in which we live. These are crucial days for all of us. There's not much time. And so we preachers grow impatient. You see it in the growing itch in all of the churches around us for more efficient ecclesiastical discipline something that we can use, a tool to whip you layman into line and get you moving so that people will join a church or give more money or commune more frequently, all kinds of programs and things. And we'll measure the vitality of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ by the efficiency with which we can get everybody on the roll into the organizational level somehow. And then we go far beyond that. We are even presumptuous enough to think sometimes that a specific people of God in a particular parish place do not belong to God, but belong to Art Heimerl or Chuck Gerlach or Martin Hollinson or Rudy Walburn. And that if today I happen to pass from the scene of this world, that Ascension Parish, for example, would die tomorrow because I wouldn't be there to lead it. And if a woman apparently does nothing more in her church than serve her Lord by cooking at church suppers, which are now traditional and outdated, or perhaps sewing quilts, it gives us pastors fits until we can get her into the church on Sunday morning. Partly, no doubt, out of an actual concern for this woman and her relationship to God, but partly also because we are utterly impatient with having anybody around in the church who doesn't fit into the ecclesiastical pattern that we, the preachers, have established. And so rather than speaking the truth in love, we stand in judgment until they are willing to conform to us. Now I'm fully aware of the problem here. I've known the same kind of impatience, and yet how differently our Lord worked. And this is the amazing patience. The patience that grew out of two things. First, a love that always respected the individual's person integrity. A firm refusal to manipulate anybody, even for that person's own good. And second, a trust in God and his power to accomplish his work in his own way, which may take a long time. And if we would grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ, we will come to learn the same kind of divine patience, the same kind of thing that sparked the life of Christ himself. And despite the urgency of these days, despite the terrible insecurity 
of serving in a parish. And believe me, it's insecure. Where nothing seems to happen unless you make it happen. As our faith goes on and grows and deepens, and along with that, our love for people, we will have the patience and the courage not to panic. But rather, we will be content to reflect the maturity of Jesus Christ with increasing sensitivity to the needs of people by risking identification with them in their needs and emptiness and perplexity and joy, and then in having the patience to let God be God, which he alone can do. And for all this, we are assured that God in his grace has equipped us all with sufficient gifts of the Spirit. Amazing, isn't it? that even for such an impossible task, we are enabled by God's grace and God's power to do it. Because you see, it doesn't call for unusual brains to be a preacher and put people to sleep on Sunday morning. It doesn't call for spectacular talents. It doesn't even call for special training, although all of these are helpful, they're useful, and they're desirable. But what it really calls for is love and faith. And these are precisely the gifts that we are assured by God in his abundance that he will provide for us. So go out now, Chuck, in that assurance to face the crazy mixed-up world, often terrifying, often frenzied, many times joyful as you relate to people and they relate to you. Go out now and be willing to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ the mark that has been placed upon your life. Amen. The peace of God that passes our understanding. Keep our hearts, keep our lives in Christ Jesus. Amen.